Look with me at Acts chapter 7 and verse 54. Acts chapter 7 and verse 54. Now when they heard these things, that they being the crowds and the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, when they heard these things, they were enraged. When they heard Stephen's preaching about the Christ and their sin, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we consider your word this evening and into tomorrow morning, as we look at the martyrdom of Stephen, what that has to do with the birth of Christ, as we look at the, the Jesus, the vision of Jesus that Stephen saw, and the imitation of Christ in Stephen's death, we pray that your spirit would be at work in our minds and hearts to teach us more about your beloved Son, Jesus, our Savior, Emmanuel, God with us, the one who lived and died and resurrected for us, the one who is ascended to your right hand and ever rules and reigns and intercedes for us. Pray that you would turn our hearts and minds to him. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it might seem a little odd, really, to begin preaching two sermons around Christmas Eve and Christmas Day on the martyrdom of Stephen. And it's not just because I was preaching through Acts 7 um, that I wanted to land here, but it was actually as we preached through Acts 7 that I began to understand the importance of bringing us to the martyrdom of Stephen and its connection to Christmas. You're going to wonder, well, well what, how are those two things connected at all? In what way do you bring those two things together? Isn't it a bit morose of you to bring up the martyrdom of Stephen on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day? Um, and I, I guess what I want to get at is I want to start by challenging you to think about Christmas a little differently than our culture challenges you to think about it. I don't know if most of you realize this, but for most people, well, most people's not true. For many people, Christmas is a time when they're suffering. It's a time that the rest of us, if we're not the ones suffering, it's the time the rest of us often try to avoid the topic of suffering and death. And we try to use Christmas as a sort of entertainment or, or, or way to entertain, entertain ourselves out of having to face what's going on in the world around us. We can be guilty of sort of taking the baby Jesus, if you will, and the Christmas season and all that attends it and basically apply it as a kind of thin veneer over the subject of suffering and death. And as we do this, we, we begin to miss the real hope that Christmas brings. We substitute the real hope that Christmas brings for, for a kind of veneer, a kind of false hope that really is just distraction from reality. 
We trade the Jesus Stephen saw when he was martyred. We trade that Jesus, the Jesus that Stephen trusted and even, and even imitated at his own martyrdom, for an Americanized, sentimentalized, domesticated Christmas Jesus who entertains us with really sweet thoughts and nostalgia. And it's because we trade the Jesus of the apostles, the Jesus whom Stephen saw, for the American Christmas Jesus that we're unable to see the true hope that Christmas brings. And rather than Christmas helping us cope with suffering and death, we end up using Christmas to distract us, to divert us from thinking about suffering and death. It doesn't end up helping us at all. In fact, the thin veneer begins to look like a sham to those who are actually suffering and dying. But Christmas ought to help us cope, not distract us. Church historian Carl Truman, commenting on this, said this, perhaps the irony of Christmas is that in its current form, it has become one of the focal points of the culture of distraction. It is all about consumption, which is just another form of distraction and diversion. It gives us a baby Jesus helpless and conveniently trapped in a manger, a Christ who is just one more manageable commodity. Ironically, the, me the real message of Christmas is the exact opposite. It is not to distract us from death, but to point us toward death, and then death's destruction in Christ. Were death not a reality, Christmas would not be necessary. Christmas, Christ was born at Christmas to destroy death and sin and suffering. And if you don't see that, if you don't see that it's exactly suffering and death that necessitated Christmas, then you will never know the beauty and glory that this season really brings. So perhaps it's important that we consider that Jesus whom Stephen trusted at the moment, really the most difficult moment of his life, his own martyrdom, the Jesus whom Stephen saw in a vision, a prophetic vision at his own death. For it is this Jesus who has dealt the fatal blow to sin and suffering and death, and Christmas is one more occasion for us to worship this Jesus and to find true hope in him. And with that said, I, I want to provide just a short bit of context. This sermon is a sermon Stephen has been preaching in response to charges that have been brought against him. In Acts, we have the 12, the apostles, and then we have set apart after them the seven. Stephen is one of the seven. And Stephen stands and begins to preach, and as he's preaching, he begins to be accused of various things. And the primary two charges brought against him are blasphemy against the law of Moses and blasphemy against the temple. In other words, really he's blaspheming the place of God, the house of God, and the word of God. That's what he's being accused of. In other words, he's blaspheming the Lord. And he responds to those charges as they ask him, are the charges true? Stephen's response is actually to turn the tables and say, you're not going to put me on trial. I'm going to put you on trial. And he spends the bulk of his sermon walking through the history of Israel, showing that Israel is in fact the one who has blasphemed the law and blasphemed the temple, and then he turns to the audience, to the crowd, the Sanhedrin, and he says to them that they are the example par excellence of blaspheming the law and the temple. 
And that primary example, that prime, the ultimate way in which they blaspheme the law in the temple is in killing the Christ, the Messiah, in betraying and murdering him. And what Stephen says is, God gave you the substance, I mean, the, the, sorry, the shadow all the way through the Old Testament. Shadow, shadow, shadow. And you killed every prophet who proclaimed the shadow to you. And then the substance that that shadow pointed to arrived, and you killed him too. And they weren't particularly happy about this in verse 54. It says, now when they heard these things, they were enraged. In other words, their hearts were torn in two. They were bursting with outrage and they ground their teeth at him, or really upon him, like animals wanting to rip him to shreds. You guys know this kind of anger. You've probably seen it in others. You've probably experienced it yourself. And he's experienced this kind of anger. Their hearts bursting with outrage, and they reach a point where they will no longer hear him. And they rush at him and stone him to death. Look at verse 57. But they cried out with a loud voice, and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. So in this scene, we see Stephen's martyrdom. And everything changes here in the book of Acts. Just for those of you who are going with us in the book of Acts, up till now, when the apostles preach, the crowds do one of two things. They repent and believe, or they generally show some kind of favor to the Christians. It's kind of, they're cute, they're nice, let's leave them alone, let's kind of watch what they're doing, they're a bit fascinating. Here that all changes. At the Sermon of Stephen, the entire, the entire, if you will, entirety of Jerusalem changes its opinion about the Christians. And now they've reached their end, and they stone Stephen, and a great persecution breaks out against the church, we're told in verse 1 of chapter 8. And I think Stephen sees this vision of Jesus in the midst of it. In the midst of this, he sees this vision of Jesus, and he imitates Christ in these particular ways. That happened, and I think Luke records these things for us by the superintendence of the Holy Spirit for the encouragement not only of Stephen, but of Christ's church. And so here's how we're going to approach it. Tonight, we're going to look at Stephen's vision. That's it. It's going to Pare it down to Stephen's vision. Tomorrow morning, we're going to look briefly at Stephen's response to his martyrdom, the way he imitates Christ. So tonight, his prophetic vision. Tomorrow, his imitation of the Messiah. And through both Stephen's vision of Jesus and Stephen's response that imitates Christ, we're going to learn about Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, our Savior. So let's look first at his, imitation, or his vision of Jesus. Verse 55. But he... Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He's a prophet here, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit, a true prophet really, as opposed to these other crowds that are not full of the Holy Spirit. And he's seeing a vision, the Holy Spirit seeing him or showing him, and as Luke says he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. That's important because Stephen has been establishing throughout his sermon that the temple was never where God's glory dwelled, but that the temple was just a copy, a shadow of the true dwelling place of God in heaven. So Stephen is, what we're seeing from Luke here is that Stephen's seeing 
the glory of God in the true temple, which is heaven. So he's seeing. And as he sees the true temple, he sees the great high priest king, Jesus, who rules in heaven and ever intercedes for us. And just that fact alone would cause the early Christians' heart to leap. Cause their hearts to leap. Jesus is on the throne. He stands in the temple in heaven. He stands before the glory of God as our priest king. We're not just talking about a man whom they knew and whom they walked with and who they saw crucified and who they reported resurrected. We're talking about a man who is the eternal priest king in the temple before the glory of God. We're talking about the Lord of glory. And while we could stop just to consider that, I want to look specifically at his vision. He says he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now look at verse 56. It says it again. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Twice that's stated. He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and then it says he sees the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But this time, as he gives that description of standing at the right hand of God, he inserts this phrase, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, just so you know, Stephen is the only person in the New Testament, the only person in the New Testament other than Jesus, to describe Jesus in this manner. Everyone else in the New Testament describes Jesus in different manners. But Jesus says, you'll see the Son of Man at the right hand of God, and Stephen says, I saw the Son of Man at the right hand of God. Now, there's a difference there I'm going to get to in a second, but they both see it. So look at Matthew 26, because you want to see the parallel here. And there's a parallel between Jesus' trial and Stephen's trial. They're paralleled with each other. Matthew 26 and verse 59. Now, the chief priests and the whole council, that's the Sanhedrin that's also trying Stephen. Same high priest, by the way. We're seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. It's exactly what they did against Stephen. They sought false testimony. We're told the same thing in Acts 6 about Stephen. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At least two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Now, of course, Jesus is talking about his body, but notice the charge here. Stephen is being charged with blaspheming the temple, and, now Je- and Jesus is also being charged with blaspheming the temple. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, now catch this, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he, uttered, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face. And struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. And then we go on to have this story about Peter denying Christ. But here's the scene. Jesus is on trial. And the parallels are striking. 
So Stephen's martyrdom bears many similarities to Jesus's. Further, Stephen describes Jesus in much the same way that Jesus does, but there's two questions we're left with, and this is what I want to answer briefly. One, where does that description, sitting at the right hand of the Son of God, or, or, of God, or, or standing at the right hand of God, where does that description come from? And two, why does Stephen say standing, whereas Jesus says sitting? Hear those two questions? Where does this whole thing about really this description of being at the right hand of God come from? And why does Stephen say standing, whereas Jesus says sitting? So let's look at the first question. Where does the description come from? Now I'm just going to read these passages to you, but you can write them down. The the description comes from Daniel 7.13 and Psalm 110. I want to read both of them to you. Daniel 7.13. Daniel's having a vision of four kingdoms, followed by the kingdom of God, which is ruled by this one who's described. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, remember Jesus used that phrase, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. So the son of man comes, and he's presented before him. And then Psalm 110.1, the Lord, this is David, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so what's happened is both Jesus and Stephen have, com- have compressed those two verses together. Jesus said, I'm the son of man, of Daniel, sitting at the right hand of God, and of, that David speaks of, the one who sits at his right hand. Stephen is saying that. In other words, that Jesus is the king of God's kingdom who's being prophesied by both Daniel and David. He's the king overall. And I want you to notice also that Psalm 110 says he'll sit on the throne until what? Until his, all his enemies are made into his footstool. The Davidic king will conquer all his enemies, and he'll save all his people. Further in Daniel 7, 14, you know the verse that follows Daniel 7, 13, we're following context, we're told that Jesus has given dominion over all, over all nations, and we're further told that he will conquer all his enemies and will vindicate all his people. So here in both contexts, in Daniel 7, 13 and following, and Psalm 110, 1 and following, in both contexts, both contexts, when it presents this Davidic king, this king of God's kingdom, this son of man who will rule the nations, this one whom Jesus is saying is him, this one whom Stephen is saying he sees in heaven as Jesus, in both contexts, it presents Jesus as the king of God's kingdom who brings justice against his enemies. He's the one who brings justice against his enemies. He'll sit on his throne until he makes all his enemies his footstool. He's the one who vindicates his people. He vindicates them. And that leads to the second question, which is, why do they see Jesus standing? Because Daniel 7.13, and if you combine that with Psalm 110, in, this, in, in that reference combined together that's used, in Psalm 110, the reference to sitting at the right hand of God is the word sitting. Jesus says he's going to be sitting, like he's enthroned. So why does Stephen see him standing? Now, now lots of theologians argue about a variety of reasons this could be. But I want to tell you that there's only one text in all the Bible that talks about the Lord standing for anything. Only one text in all the Scripture where it talks about the Lord standing. So that would probably be a good starting place for us figuring out why Jesus is standing in heaven, the one place where the Lord stands. And by the way, 
It's a very similar context to Daniel 7 and Psalm 110. It's from Isaiah 3.13. Listen to this. The Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge peoples, to judge the nations. See, the Lord stands to judge the nations. He stands at his throne in judgment. So what does Stephen see at this scene? What what does that have to do with what he sees at this scene? Why is it that while Stephen's about to be martyred by this Sanhedrin, at that moment as he's about to be martyred, he sees Jesus standing He is seeing the Lord Jesus stand at his throne during his martyrdom because, I'm asserting, he is seeing Jesus standing to judge and to save. To judge those who are persecuting Stephen and to save and vindicate the name of Stephen. And I suppose that's what I want you to walk away with tonight. That's it. The Lord stands... For Stephen, because as the Lord of glory who judges the nations, he stands at the moment of Stephen's unjust martyrdom in judgment on the people unjustly martyring Stephen. And to vindicate his faithful servant Stephen. Stands for both purposes. Perhaps we need to know that Christmas reminds us that Jesus is the Savior King. And to be saved, to be saved is not only to be forgiven for your sins, it's to be delivered from your enemies. And as the Savior King, he vindicates his people and judges his enemy. So no matter what sin and suffering and persecution you might face, you have a Savior in heaven, Jesus Christ, the righteous, your justification and your vindication. As we see Christians martyred and persecuted, this happened just this week. Martyred. They're not martyred in the U.S., but Christians are being martyred around the world. As we see them martyred and persecuted, as we turn on our televisions to see injustice happen throughout the world, as we face ridicule for our own faith, as we face tragedy and and wonder why God is allowing our enemy death to reign victorious, frankly, as we face our own enemy, death. You, You know that, right? Death is your enemy. Death's your enemy. And every moment the clock ticks, your enemy draws nearer. And death will have victory over you in this mortal life. Unless Christ returns, you will close your eyes in death. Your enemy will catch you and will overcome you. And you will be defeated. And you know it. And the problem is we're so afraid of it that we distract ourselves from ever ever considering it. You will die. I mean, it's an uplifting message at Christmas, isn't it? (laughs) You will, but let me tell you why it's uplifting. It's not uplifting because you will die. 
I know we want to sweep right over it. When someone comes to die whom we love, and as they're facing death, we want to look at them and go, you're about to be with the Lord. Yeah, but I'm dying right now. That isn't pleasant. Yes, I'm about to be with the Lord, but recognizing the triumph of Christ at the cross and in his resurrection does not mean that I somehow escape having to face the reality of suffering and sin and death. We're so afraid of death, we we don't even have funerals anymore. We have celebrations of life. Do you know that all churches pretty much used to be built right by graveyards? They have a graveyard attached to the church. Imagine that as you're coming every Sunday. If you walked into that church and they were having a happy, clappy service after walking right past the graveyard, you might think twice about how ridiculous it all looks, wouldn't you? It's like, did we all just miss the reality we walked by as we walked in here to put a thin veneer over this thing and pretend like there isn't really sin and suffering and death going on out there? That kind of Christianity, that kind of Santa Claus, baby Jesus in the manger, Christmas and Easter version of Christianity where it's just made into American holidays of nostalgia to apply a thin veneer so that we don't have to face the reality of suffering and death is so shallow that it's cruel to people who are suffering. It's cruel. You will die. You will. Here's what's fascinating about that, though. What's hopeful, I think, is a better word for that. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. That Christ came to stand in judgment of your enemies. So even when your eyes close in death, believer, when sin has had its day in your life, because the wages of sin is death, even when you reach that point in your final moments of life and your eyes are closing in death and the wages of sin are coming due for you, even at that moment, Jesus stands for his people in judgment on death and in the vindication of your name. You see, Jesus was vindicated at his resurrection, and at his return, he vindicates all his saints with him. He vindicates them. Because the eternal, or I say, the wages of sin of death, but what? The gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. We can all face death knowing that Jesus will stand in judgment over all of our enemies and all of his enemies, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So death's victory is made impotent by the advent of Christ. And we can go home tonight or go to our Christmas parties or or wherever it is that you're going after this and be encouraged that we don't have to paint a thin veneer of holiday magic over suffering and death. But we can face it knowing that Jesus was born to conquer death. We can know, you know the lyrics to Hark the Herald Angels Sing? We can know that mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. 
born to give them second birth. And if we're trusting in Christ as our hope for the forgiveness of our sins, our righteousness, our life as the one who vindicates us on that great day of his return, if we're trusting in him, then we can sing with those herald angels, glory to the newborn king. And that's what Christmas is really about. Let me pray. Father, we ask, we ask that as we come together this Christmas Eve and even tomorrow Christmas Day and look at Stephen's martyrdom and the imitation of your son as he's martyred, the vision that he has of Jesus, that we would understand that Jesus is God with us in justification and vindication, that he is God with us in mercy and forgiveness, that he will triumph, has and will triumph over death on our behalf. That we are now born again as we look to your Son in faith. That we have triumphed over death in the ultimate sense, though we still face it in this life. We ask, Father, that we would look to Jesus. That we would know he is our hope. That we would understand that, that he was born that man no more may die, and that we would glory in him. In Jesus' name, amen.